Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Wow, so there was a, a monk by the name of Telemachus. Might not know him, but he lived back in the fourth century, and he felt God say to him, he said, he said God told him to go to Rome, but he lived in a cloistered monastery, and so he knew he had to obey God, so he put his possessions in a sack, and he set out for Rome, and when he arrived in the city, people were thronging in the streets. He asked what all the excitement was about, and he was told that this is the day that the gladiators would be fighting and killing each other in the Colosseum. This is a day of games, the circus they referred to it. So he thought to himself, he said, four centuries after Christ, and they're still killing each other for enjoyment. He ran into the Colosseum and heard the gladiators saying, hail to Caesar, we die for Caesar. And he thought, this just isn't right. So he jumped over the railing and he went out into the middle of the Colosseum and he got between two gladiators and he held his hands up and he said, in the name of Christ, forbear. The crowd protested and began to shout, run him through, run him through. And a gladiator came over and hit him in the stomach with the back of his sword. It sent him sprawling into the sand. So he got back up and he, he ran to them yet again. And he said, in the name of Christ, forbear. The crowd began to chant louder, run him through, run him through. So one gladiator came over and plunged his sword through the little monk's stomach, and he fell into the sand, which began to turn crimson red from the blood. One last time, he gasped out, in the name of Christ, forbear. A hush came over that Colosseum filled with over 80,000 people, and soon one man stood up and left. And then another stood up and left. Within a few moments, all 80,000 people left the Colosseum. And as far as we know, that was the end of the Gladiator Games. You see, to make a difference, you have to be different. This monk was different. He, he took a stand when others wouldn't. He he risked his life for what he believed in. He didn't enjoy what other people enjoyed. He was just one small man who loved Jesus and definitely was used in history to make a difference. Now, you may be here this morning and you may be saying, well, I'm a nobody. I'm not talented. I'm not smart. I mean, how am I going to make a difference? Well, I just want to remind you, if you think that you are too small to make a difference, you've probably never spent all night with a mosquito. I want to encourage you this morning that you and I can make a difference for Christ. But I need you to understand loudly and clearly that if you're going to make a difference, you're going to have to be different. We're in the book of Daniel. And just like Daniel, we're going to find ourselves forcibly planted in the soil of an anti-God, anti-Christian culture. It's going to be absolutely imperative that our heart be drawn to heaven and our mind immersed deeply in the Word of God 
Paul tells us this in Colossians 3, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. He says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. We read it this morning in our prayer time, but again, Romans 12, 2 says, Paul adds, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it seems like those two passages were words to live by for four Hebrew teenagers who've been plucked up from their families and their country and taken captive to evil empire of the day called Babylon. You may know their Hebrew names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You may not know those names. You may know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We are introduced this morning to these amazing teenagers told this morning that these four teenagers, they really made a difference. The reason they made a difference is because they were different. I've invited our students this morning, three of our teenagers and our youth minister, to come up this morning and read our text. So as they're coming up to read our text, I wonder if you would stand as we get ready to read the Word of God. Dave, I'm going Jill's mic. Jill, right there, sweetheart. Would you stand as a reading of God's word? Dave, you got her? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belshazzar, and Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice of food or the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm not afraid of my, of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you, would look, uh, then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer who the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them be given some vegetables to be to eat and water to drink. Uh, then let our apprentice be observed in your presence in the appearance of our youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with their servants according to what you see. 
So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. Wait a minute. But Daniel said to the overseer who commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink, and they kept giving them vegetables. As for these youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even undertook all kinds of, uh, understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of, all of, uh, out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Man, may God bless the reading of his word. So really what I want to kind of break this down is, and this is a two parts of a, of a message I kind of want to break this passage down and just kind of tell you, man, how was it that they made a difference? Again, if we're going to make a difference, we've got to be different. And so first of all, I think this passage teaches us that we can embrace the plan to be different. You can embrace the plan to be different. Verses 1 through 3 goes back and it says, in the year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you've got to know that name, Nebuchadnezzar, that's another name. He, he came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. Now, this is interesting because it says that he came and besieged it, but yet the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So what's going on there? That's crazy. And he takes away some of these vessels, right? And he takes them down to Shinar, code word Babylon, to the house of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Now, think about this. You see, God has a plan for us, and that plan usually requires us to be different. Dale Davis, a commentator, says this. He says, sometimes God may allow hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. Now, God's purpose in doing so is almost always multifaceted. God brings suffering into the lives of his people to demonstrate his sovereignty, strengthen our faith, show himself wise and strong, and put his glory on display among the nations that they may be drawn to him. I know that there's pain and hardships in life and, and that the great pain that we experience according to God's plan is really for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. And it's that perspective that will help us understand that really Daniel and these four teenagers are not the hero in the book of Daniel. God is the hero of the book of Daniel. It's a sovereign, all-powerful God of grace who, as another commentator, Brian Chappell writes, uses his sovereign power to maintain his covenant promises. This gospel, according to Daniel, should give us courage against our foes, hope in distress, and perseverance in our trials. 
So first of all, we have to understand that, man, God has this plan, and you and I, as the sovereign God, we have to embrace his plan, submit to it. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, there's a couple of things here that we have to understand. The first thing is this, that God overrules sins of people according to his plan. God overrules sins of people. If you think about it there back in this text, King Jehoiakim is there reigning in Judah, but yet the king of Babylon comes and, and begins to take over. And throughout history, foreign and hostile armies have invaded nations with acts of aggression and war. We're seeing that play out in our modern day with Russia and Ukraine. And the results are tragic. There's lives lost, land destroyed, prop property destroyed, POWs taken captive, and people sent away to live in lands to never see their family and friends again. That's exactly what happened to Daniel and his friends. They were uprooted and replanted in the harsh and wicked soil of the Babylonian Empire. But yet this is where the surprise comes in. This was all God's doing. Verse 1 provides the historical context. Tells us where we're at in history. Verse 2 tells us the theological explanation for such history. Judah, the southern kingdom, had been in political and spiritual decline for some time. During the reign of Jehoiakim, which was 609 to 598, one of Judah's worst kings who was nothing like his father, his father was the godly Josiah. Jehoiakim was nothing like his father. So in the year 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, he reigns from 605 to 562, he attacks Jerusalem. And we've got to deal with something here because if you're a Bible scholar, you're going to pick something up here. We have a discrepancy between Chronicles and what we find here in Daniel. And you may not know it, but I'm helping you understand that maybe people that you go to college with are going to help you think that maybe your Bible is not true because of this. So we've got to back up and deal with something immediately. Nebuchadnezzar here, his name means Nabu, has protected my inheritance. And he's the king right now. The text tells us at 605 BC that he is the king of Babylon. But yet, he isn't the king of Babylon yet. Because his father, Nebuchadnezzar, is actually the king. But yet, in this same time, though, with the time of this happens, he comes in to attack Jerusalem and he hears that his father is dying. So he leaves to go then be presented as king. So at the time of the invasion, not necessarily was he king, but yet after he went and, and his father died, he became king. So that's how we can justify the two. Daniel's writing at the end of all this and says that, yes, Nebuchadnezzar became king. So we just have to know what's going on there. Nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem, and this happens, why? Because the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. The Lord is doing this. Jehoiakim was the 17th king of Judah, and he was the eldest son of Josiah. Jehoiakim's younger brother, Jehoahaz, had been placed on the throne after Pharaoh Necho killed Josiah in 609. Necho dethrones Jehoiaz and placed Jehoiakim on the throne, according to 2 Chronicles. Why is this important? Trust me, it'll make sense later. So the vessels of God, the trophies of war, they were transported to Babylon and placed in the, in the house of the pagan god in Babylon, probably Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonians. And this was really a way, as we covered last week, 
of saying that, well, our God is better and stronger than your God. Our God is really sovereign. But yet, if my God allowed you to come in and do this, whose God is really sovereign? Daniel teaches us that this is really not so, that there is no God greater than Yahweh. Really what's happened here, folks, and it goes back to our point, that God is going to overrule the sins of people according to his plan because the people have sinned against God, and now God is judging them because of their sin. And in the process, God is going to extend his presence among the nations. Work with me here. God is at work even though people are sinning. And God will, if we don't allow God to rule, he will overrule and take over. When people sin, God overrules sin to accomplish his plan. God is so sovereign, you need to understand this, this is to blow your mind, that God is so sovereign and so big that he can allow you to make personal choices that he's still sovereign over. When he is not permitted to rule, he will overrule, and his will will be done, and his name will be glorified. And the sooner that I can wrap my brain around that, the sooner that I can just submit that even though I may be sinning, God will overrule. Even though this nation in America may be sinning, God's will will be done. God will overrule sin to accomplish his plan. You can bet on it, but secondly, God often scatters people according to his plan. God has always desired his people to be on mission. And if you and I want to sit here and no, God, not go on mission, God says, well, now I've got some people that'll go do it, but until you do, I'm going to start sending y'all places. It'd be amazing if you started losing your jobs because you didn't want to go on mission because God's got a unique way of getting you where he wants you to get anyway. Over and over, the prophets had warned the leaders and the people. Jeremiah had warned Jehoiakim of the coming invasion of the Babylonians. You know Jeremiah, but maybe you didn't know Habakkuk was preaching along the same time. And Habakkuk says in 1, verses 5 through 6, he says, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march through the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. And that's exactly what happened. Isaiah, is on, he's a contemporary with these guys, and he prophesies in chapter 13, 21, and 39. But then Micah, another of the minor prophets, is also prophesying during this same time. Micah 4.10, writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon, and there you will be rescued. Therefore the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies." The sins of the people resulted in God scattering his people because God always wants a witness among the nations. There would be three deportations. This would happen over a period of 70 years. Why is that important? Hang tight. The first deportation, the first scattering happened in 605 by Nebuchadnezzar. The next one happens in 597 when Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiakim, we find in our text, is, is compelled to surrender, and there goes the, the people again, and Ezekiel the prophet is taken in this one. And then in 587, total destruction comes upon the land, and so you put 605 to 587, and this now is the lasting of the captivity would be for 70 years. Well, why is that important? Because Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah said it's coming, but it's going to last this long. 
In Jeremiah 25, 11, he says this, the whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon. How many years, church? 70 years. Then it will be when seven years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, I will make an everlasting desolation. You know today why you don't hear anything about Babylon? It's because God made it disappear. You know today why the people of Israel are back in the land of Israel? Because God said so in his word. Jeremiah 29.10 says, Thus there's the Lord. When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And now, not on the screen, but now through your, your pastor telling you, now Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, not to harm you, but to promise a good future for you, a hope. So both took place, the 70 years of captivity and the last verse that you read here in verse 21, that Daniel reigned until Cyrus the king. And then what did Cyrus the king do when he came on the scene? He began to let under the prophet, prophets, they go right back up into the land because 70 years were over and it happened just as God had said. God overrules the sins of men and God scatters his people to make them a witness in his land. In Deuteronomy 28, the Lord, the Lord had warned the people that if they disobeyed him, curses would come upon them. And those curses in Deuteronomy 28 include military defeat and deportation. God kept his word. And God will always accomplish his plan. It doesn't matter what sin stands in his way or how stubborn we are not to accomplish it. God's will will be attempted and it will be executed. So, and we see, going back here to the text, remember I told you there was some historical stuff here. In addition to the temple vessels that were brought to the land of Shamar, Shanar, Nebuchadnezzar ordered a, nan, a man by the name of Ashpenaz to deport members both of the royal family and the nobility. Why is he doing that? It's intended to strip the nation of its best and brightest. As verse 4 makes clear, it would also benefit Babylon. But yet don't miss what God is doing. Please don't miss what God is doing. This now becomes, pay attention, a divine invasion of the people of God into the land of Babylon. See how sovereign your God is? You thought you were taking us over. No, God's just planting missionaries in your culture that's going to change it forever. That's the awesomeness of our God. The city of man is being invaded by the city of God, referring to Augustine's great book. Shinar, Babylon, the land of ziggurats. Remember the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis this idols and false god, the city that opposed the true God is now being infiltrated by the Lord's army. That's a small incursion to be sure, but one that will accomplish far more than anyone could have ever imagined. Because now what has happened, whether you realize it or not, prophecy is being fulfilled from Luke chapter 21, 29, that the times of the Gentiles has now officially started. And Israel will be oppressed and her people will be scattered, but the nations will now have a witness among them to testify to the one true and living God. You see, this has been God's plan all along. God wanted his people to make a difference, and to do so, he wanted them to be different, not like the other nations. God wants his people to be a light unto the nations. Isaiah 42, 6 says this, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. In other words, I've called you to be different. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. 
Isaiah 49, 6. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Friends, salvation doesn't get to the ends of the earth if all of God's people stayed in Jerusalem. God has called his people to be a kingdom of priests, pointing people to salvation. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a what? Holy nation. Well, that's interesting. God has a plan for us to make a difference, but we have to be different. This is what Daniel did, and he was a light bringing the nations to Christ. That's exactly why God overruled the sins of the people and then scattered them, because God was making Daniel a light to a very dark nation. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3 says, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's still God's plan for us to be different so that we can make a difference. You're saying, help me understand what that means for me today. Well, your New Testament says exactly the same thing. It's the whole counsel of God's word. It's been God's plan from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see it? God hasn't changed his plan. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16, it says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, for nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. So let your light shine brightly before men in such a way, in such a way, Daniel, in such a way, audience, this morning, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is heaven. Listen, you and I have to embrace God's plan, that this is what he's about. We are to live differently, not like the world to whom we're being sent. You and I have to be different to make a difference. God scatters us so that other people can hear about Jesus. Did you know this morning that God has already scattered your parents to get you to where you're at today? Did you know that? You are not in the Grange by accident. I don't know if you knew that or not. I mean, I have proof positive to promise you that you are here according to God's sovereign plan, that you would be a light right here in this community. Did you know that? You're saying, Pastor, how do you know that? How can you speak that with confidence? Because the word of God says in Acts chapter 17, and he made one from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Did you know that God decided that you would be born now and you would live here? Did you know that? You have been put here in the Grange or Smithville or Fayetteville or or wherever you live for a reason, it's God's plan. And just like Daniel, you may not have got here by choice. I get that. There's some of you kids, man, you're saying, dude, LaGrange is the most boring town ever. I can't wait to get out of here. Well, listen, be careful. Be careful. Daniel wasn't in Babylon by choice. But listen, rather than being mad about it, he made a difference about it. He embraced God's plan, and you can too. Jeremiah also said something about what we're to do while we're living in the place we may not want to be. We're to be a light, but Jeremiah says it even gets deeper. 
He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have what? So you got to be different. You can't just be mad. Well, maybe you can. Is mad is an acronym that stands for making a difference. The people sinned in Jerusalem, and they weren't fulfilling God's plan, so he overruled their sin, and he scattered them. And Warren Wiersbe, a great man of God, a commentator, says it this way. Pay attention. He said, God would rather have his people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in the holy land, disgracing his name. You have to learn that you can't erase God's plan, you can't change it, or you can't come up with another plan. You just embrace God's plan. It's the only one there is. And you and I are going to make a difference when we're different. The plan has to start with embracing his plan. So let me ask you the question this morning, just some quick application to maybe where you're at. Are you walking in darkness or are you walking in the light? Let's make it a little more specific. Is there a noticeable difference between your life and the life of the people that you know that don't know Christ? Is it noticeable? How you speak, how you act and react, what you watch, what you listen to, what you allow into your mind, what you think about, what your habits are, Are you really different? Or are you not? God has called us to make a difference. And I'm telling you, church, we won't make a difference until we are different. So I do that by embracing God's plan. And very quickly, secondly, I can endure the pressures to be different. Verses 3 through 7 says, Hey, the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief officials, to bring in sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Daniel and his four friends are from the line of Judah, and they are incredibly royal and noble people. They came from, like, king's lineage here, folks. Youths in whom was no defect. They were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning and knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered them to teach the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration of the king's choice food and wine from which he drank, and he appointed that they should be educated three years, and at the end of that, they were in the king's personal service. Now among them, the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned them new names, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now see, what you have here is a collision of worldviews. A worldview is a particular way of looking at and seeing life in the world in which we live. It shapes both the way we think and the way we live. To help you kind of understand what I mean by this, I have a few quotes. A worldview is a comprehensive view of life through which we think, understand, and judge, and which determines our approach and life and meaning. That's kind of my attempt. Another one says this, a worldview is that basic set of assumptions that gives meanings to one's thoughts. A worldview is the set of assumptions that someone has about the way things are, about what things are, 
and about why things are. That was my professor when I was in seminary. Another book I read in my doctoral work says this, a worldview is a set of presuppositions, assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold either consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic makeup of our world. And another scholar says it this way. He says, one's worldview is perhaps best reflected by one's answers to the ultimate questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What's it all about? Is there a God? How can I live and die happily? What are good and evil? What would I die for, etc." You see, why this is important is because today we live in a post-Christian context. You may not know that, but America isn't a Christian nation anymore. With an increasingly non-Christian and secular worldview, just absolutely everywhere you turn in our culture, there's pressure in every direction to, for, to force us, not just to suggest to us, but to force us to conform to the mindset and the spirit of the age. And this challenge is not new. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Daniel and his three friends face the same challenges and pressures that you modern-day teenagers and older people are going to face. And so God has called us. Listen, if we're going to make a difference, we have to be different. And one of the ways that we're going to do that is we have to endure the pressures according to God's plan. So you're going to face some things just like they did. What is something you're going to face? Well, you may face isolation context. You may face isolation context. The first step in making Babylonians out of these four Hebrew teenagers was isolation from their homeland, their family, and their friends. This isolation would have been traumatic and a shock to their system. It would have put their world in a tailspin. They were extremely vulnerable because they were isolated and separated from all that was familiar, and they were even more, far more susceptible to the new ideas now that they would encounter. This Babylonian strategy would increase the likelihood of their deconversion of faith in Yahweh God and their conversion to the faith of the worldview of Babylon. Babylon, Babylon, Babylon is the strategy of the colleges in our country today. I see this same strategy successfully employed by the evil one in our own day. But listen to me, and I'm not trying to to fight here, I'm just trying to tell you what I really want to say, and I'm just going to say it like this. In Daniel's case, he had to go to Babylon U involuntarily. Today, we just send our kids to Babylon U voluntarily. Naively, and sometimes willingly, parents send their children off to secular colleges and universities, lambs prepared for slaughter. And they're isolated from their church and their Christian friends, and they're quickly seduced by so-called intellectual elites, and then they begin walking away from the church. The evil one still knows what he's doing. If we can get the best and brightest of our young men and women and just get them onto these secular campuses away from the church and away from their influences, guess what they begin to do? So let me just help you here, a quick way of application. I don't know if you knew this or not, and I'm going to say it to you, not because I'm mad, but just because I'm going to tell you. In the four years that I've been your pastor, I haven't had a single person ask me about a Christian college in Texas. But man, these secular universities, man, 
I mean, it's just like it's like a riot or something. I don't know. But we have Christian colleges in the state of Texas that blow the secular universities off the mat when it comes to placing people in jobs according to education. And here's the cool thing. If you're a Baptist and you're a member of this church, you can go to one of our Baptist colleges for almost half the price you would go to a normal college and get a better education and keep consistent with a Christian worldview. But... Every parent and every child has to go where God has called them. If your kids are being called to go to a secular campus, make sure they're different and make sure that they can endure the pressures that are coming. You need to disciple them now, not later. Jacob, you better do a good job teaching them now, not later. People are going to try to isolate you from your Bible. Did you know that? They're going to tell you in your school that you can't bring it here and you can't read that here. They'll try to isolate you from your family of faith. In other words, hey, you really need this scholarship, kid. And when you're in high school, you've, you've got to get this college scholarship so you can miss youth group and you can miss coming to church because you need this scholarship. So they start young. They'll try to isolate you from your Christian friends. Hey, look at those friends. They're just so boring. Let's have some real fun. Get away from those people. They're just losers. They'll try to isolate you from the truth so they teach kids all kinds of lies and make them repeat them and study them and even defend them in their classrooms. Listen, to make a difference, you're going to have to be different. You're going to have to take a stand and endure the pressures because it is going to come. Secondly, you may face indoctrination concepts. Verse 4 affirms these young men were among the best of the Israelis. In addition from coming from the royal family and nobility in verse 3, they were good-looking, without blemish, of good appearance. They were smart, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning. They were blessed with leadership and interpersonal skills. They were competent to stand in the king's palace. They were the ideal candidates to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans, the text says. In other words... They were enrolled in Babylon University for three years. And brainwashing began immediately in a world like anything they had ever seen. University of Babylon is going to give them a first-class secular education in Babylonian language, philosophy, literature, science, history, astrology, agriculture, architecture, and religion. They would have been forced to study the mythologies of Babylon, the greatness of Marduk, the importance of the pantheon of pantheistic deities that dominated their Near Eastern world. Dream interpretation and omen reading would also have been a part of the course required course load. In other words, I'm trying to tell you the new age really isn't new, isn't New age really isn't new. It's the old age just wrapped up in a different pack package. I mean, was just think like a Babylon was a popular song that these Hebrews were going to be forced to learn and they're going to be forced to love to sing it. I'm going to say something here, and it's controversial, and I need you to hear my heart on this. I am not trying to make anybody feel ashamed. I'm just trying to describe our culture and to be faithful and true to the Bible. But if you don't think an indoctrination is happening in our country, just, just period, I need you to get your head out of the sand for a moment. The commercials that you see nowadays are trying to convince you that homosexuality and transgenderism is normal and it's okay. You cannot show me a commercial anymore that doesn't have that saturated into its, its branding. The courses at colleges are overwhelmingly anti-biblical. I went and looked up the, the University of Texas' course load and was blown away by the classes that were being offered. 
I didn't bear, dare look at Texas A&M and the others. I just wanted to be fair. Porn books are now allowed in our libraries. If you've been paying attention, people have been trying to call this out at school board meetings and they're getting sent out instead of being allowed to read. Drag shows are happening in libraries. It just happened down in San Antonio and Kurt Kamen was trying to, to, to say you can't do that here. The music of the day celebrates fornication, sex, drugs, stealing, and killing. And what's worse is some of our parents are allowing their children to listen to this music and then even saying, hey, I'll pay for the ticket for you to go and, and to their concert. It's an attempt to absolutely indoctrinate us with the philosophies of the world. And I'm telling you, we have to stand strong. If we're going to make a difference, we have to be different. Thirdly, you may face isolation concepts, indoctrination concepts, and then here's something that I made up. You may face ingestion constants. You're saying, I've never heard the word ingestation constants. I didn't say infestation. I didn't say gestation. I said ingestation. It's not a word. I made it up. I'm a doctor. I can do that. Your doctor does it all the time. He speaks foreign words to you when you go, the, the, right? This is a new word. It's not a typo. So work with me here. Here's what I mean. Converting these followers of Yahweh into followers of Babylon required total immersion in the world of Babylon, including what they ate and what they drank. You have to ingest, not just in the mind, but with your stomach as well. Changing their minds was a start, so we'll isolate them and fill their minds with our thoughts. Next, we'll get them to focus on changing their lifestyle, and we're going to tempt them with our finest delicacies. If we can change their lifestyle, we completely have them. They were to eat like a Babylonian and drink like a Babylonian. Remember that song, Walk Like an Egyptian, right? That, that's what was happening here. They were to ingest what was being given to them, and the goal was to entice them with the delicacies and privileges of their new life. This was an attempt to wear them down and to win them over to the dark side. This full program of seduction and conversion was underway. Now, let me just go ahead and tell you this. The world is always going to offer you the things that are pleasant to your eyes, the things that play to your pride, and the things that appeal to your senses, desires, and wants. That's what 1 John tells us. And if you're going to make a difference, you have to be different, and you're going to have to endure those temptations. But Nebuchadnezzar and his team are not finished. In three years, these boys are going to be given a final exam. But one final strategy is given to help them, and that is I may face identification confusion. I may face identification confusion. Verses 6 and 7 tell us of their Hebrew names that got changed to their Babylonian names. Daniel and his friends were of nobility. Verse 3 tells us they were the royal blood. Verse 6 tells us that they were Judites. That means they were from the line of the tribe of Judah. This was an attempt to change their identity of being a true child of God, of Yahweh. For the first time, we're introduced to these Hebrew aristocracy exiles. Certainly there were others, but the book of Daniel only records the story of these four. Each of them was from the tribe of Judah. And these youth, their Hebrew names, were given to them to honor the one true God and was a reflection of their true identity. So let's really look at what's going on. I don't know if you can see it in the text, but I want to put it up here on the screen for you. Daniel, Daniel's name meant God, 
or El, Daniel. Elohim is the name of God that is in Daniel's name. God is my judge. He put the meaning and the prefix Elohim, God is my judge. So then he gets changed to Bel, to Shazar. Baal protects the king. Changing it from the one true God to this false Babylonian God. God is my judge to Baal protects the king. Hananiah. You might not have heard this, but at the end of Hananiah's name is the Ah, Yahweh. That's God's name in Hananiah's name. God, Yahweh, has been and is gracious. His name is changed to Shadrach. Under the command of Aku, which was another god in Babylon, Shadraku, if you were. The command of Aku, the moon god, or I am fearful of a god. Mishael, there's the name Elohim again. There is none like God. To Meshaku or Meshach, there is none like Aku, the moon god. Azariah, there it is, the Ah, Yahweh, God Yahweh has helped me to Abednego, the servant of Nabo. Remember Nabo Pelazer from Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian god of wisdom. This was an all-out attempt to have them completely change who they worshipped and who they were as worshipers. By hearing these names over and over and over and over again, it was to try to convince them that they were changing who they were and changing who they worshipped. This was an attempt to get them to honor the Babylonian gods in similar ways that they had honored Yahweh. They were intended to confuse these young men and reorientate them away from Yahweh and toward the gods that they were now serving. Changing names today is not a big deal. I would even say for most people, naming people today doesn't seem to be a big deal. But in the ancient world, and you have to understand the historical context, it was a big deal to have your name changed because it went to the very identity and core of who a person was because every Hebrew family named their children, not because it was a cool name, but because that was their identity. That's what they wanted to become and when they grew up. So let's put this in modern day culture. Again, I am not trying to shame anybody. If this is your struggle, I'm not trying to make you mad. I'm just trying to preach God's truth to my people here. But do you think it's coincident in today's culture, there's an overwhelming pressure to get you to change your pronouns or to get you to change your name or even your identity? Do you think it's an accident that that people want to change God's name and make it from masculine to feminine? Or, Or God is whomever you desire her or him or it to be. The world wants to use our terms, and they even want to call themselves Christians, people who they say, I love God, people who believe in Jesus, but yet they have a very different dictionary when it comes to defining what it means to be a Christian. Listen, I want you students to listen to me. I want you to hold fast your identity in Christ, and I want you to hold fast to who your God is. If I were a teenager, I would make it my goal not to be good at geometry, but to be good at the Bible. I would make it my passion not to just pass math with excelling and be in honors classes. I would want to know my Bible better than I knew any book on this planet. Study to know who you are and who God says he is. Students, people in this room, you do not have to let commercials, movie stars, 
bands, YouTube, TikTok, social media influencers. You don't have to allow any of that to determine who you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to look like, how you're supposed to dress, because that is all a lie from the pit of hell. There's one place and one place only that your identity comes from, and it is right here. You belong to Jesus. You are a child of the Most High God. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made. You are righteous and holy. You are the apple of his eye. So instead of getting your worldview from the world, get your worldview from the word. This book tells you who you are, why you're here, and that there is a God. That's what worldview we start out with. That's what all of us are trying to search for. And the book, the book very quickly tells you that in John 13, 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I've loved you, you also love one another. So this is telling me, Jesus is saying, basically, who gives commands to God's people? God does. Well, then Jesus is claiming to be God. You want to know if there's a God? Look to Jesus and you'll find God. That's who God is. Well, then who am I? If there is a God, then who am I? The text here says that you are the beloved. You're the ones that have been loved by God. That is your identity. That's who you are. You are one who's been loved by this God. Well, then why am I here? This text tells you that. Why are you here? You're to love other people as God has loved you. That's a worldview right there. Is there a God? Who am I? And what am I here for? This is the book telling you that. Don't let the world tell you that. You see what I mean, friends? No matter you can endure the pressures, all those previously mentioned pressures, you can endure. And I know the pressing question is, is Pastor, you've given us a lot of stuff, but how do we do this? So in the few remaining moments that I have, I want to tell you how you do this. Look at John chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. And he who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. Friends, I'm just here today to tell you, what do you have to do for darkness to overtake you? You do not have to go around getting in bad sin. You don't have to hang around bad people. You don't have to get off into crazy, crazy things. You don't have to leave the church. You don't have to do all that. The only thing that you and I have to do for the darkness to overtake us is simply this. Stop walking in the light. You stop walking in the light, and darkness is not just going to show up. It's going to overtake you. So Jesus says to walk in the light. Well, how do we do that? Well, first of all, have frequent experiences with Christ. Have frequent experiences with Christ. There's three sources of light, at least three sources of light that I can find in the Scripture. Have frequent experiences with Christ. John 8, 12. Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, listen to me, church, and I, I don't mean this again, Darely. I just mean this to say this to you, to challenge you. For many in this room, the last true experience you had with Jesus was your first experience with Jesus. And that is not to be the case. We're supposed to be daily having fresh experiences with Jesus. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have to have these fresh experiences. If you're going to walk in the light, you have to walk with Jesus. For example, in Galatians 2.20, the Bible says that, that, that God says, listen, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but, but I live by faith in the one who loves me 
and gave himself for me. Last week, I was reading over that, just reading over that and asking myself, who are you, God? And Jesus, where do I see you loving people in this text? And then how am I supposed to love others like you've loved me? And it was in that moment that Jesus stepped into my little room and just said, Steve, I love you. You're the one whom I love. The one who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus was so real to me. He knew what I was praying about. He knew what was on my heart. He said, Steve, it doesn't matter. I love you. And it just ministered to my heart. You've got to have that. Secondly, have frequent encounters with the word of God. Frequent encounters with the word of God. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I'm going to make a statement. Justin, hold me to it. But I'm going to promise you, you can't walk in the light and not be in the word. It is just not going to happen. The word of God is living and active. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the digits of soul and spirit, both joints and merit, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Romans 12, 1 and 2, you heard that before, but don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Listen to me. If you're going to walk in the light, you have to like know how to do that. And that's what the word of God is going to do. This past week in 2 Corinthians 13, 8, I'm reading the Bible and Rachel and I are having to make some very hard decisions. We're having to take a stand for the truth with one of our daughters. We're just having to stand on what God's word says, no matter what happens. And Paul writes there in 2 Corinthians 13, 8. I just quickly show this to you. This is my Bible, my daily devotional Bible. I've got this marked here in my Bible. This is an encounter with God's word. I've got it over on the side right here. It says this, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And my decision has been based on the word of God from the very get-go. And God just confirmed and affirmed and reassured me, Steve, you are walking in the light with this decision. Just keep standing on the truth of my word. That's how I know I'm walking in the light. Thirdly, have frequent engagements with the people of God. Frequent engagements with the people of God. Matthew 5, 14 says, you and I are the light of the world. You and I are the light of the world. So if I'm going to walk in the light, I need to be around the people that have the light. Did you know that inside of your soul, inside of your heart, you have light that I need? Did you know that inside of me, I have light that you need? And when we get together, we can mutually encourage one another to stay in the light. So, If you're going to walk in the light, you've got to be around people who are walking in the light, and you and I simply need each other. 2 Corinthians, this past week, man, I was over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and Paul talks about the man, in my weakness, Christ is made strong, and I am helpless in a situation I've got going on in my life, something I'm praying about that I have no control over whatsoever, and I'm saying, God, I'm so helpless. I feel so weak, and the scripture says, man, that in your weakness, Steve, you'll be made strong, and so I knew I had to get around a few pastors, and so I went down to a conference. I drove two hours to get to this conference just to be with some men of God who I knew would speak into my life, and they spoke spoke some things into me, and they prayed over me, and hours they just spent pouring over me and and just believing in me, and I left feeling like a completely new man because I had been around people who would speak into me, and you and I need that to happen to us as well. So that's how you walk in a light, just fresh encounters with Jesus, fresh experiences there in the Word, and, and fresh engagement with the people of God. So come back next week for the final two ways you can make a difference by being different. 
But for now, let's make a difference and end this thing. So Nathan, would you and your team come? I guess let me ask you this question as you're preparing your heart for the invitation. Are you different? Because if you want to make a difference, you're just going to have to be different. If you're saying, man, I'm trying to be different and I'm lonely, I've lost all my friends. Well, guess what? That's why this church is here. But listen, you can't just show up every now and then, right? Sunday morning is probably not going to cut it for you. That's why Justin keeps telling you, man, we have growth groups, adult Bible studies. We have things going on on Wednesday nights. You've got to get around this family. If you're being overwhelmed by the world's message, can I just, can I just challenge you this? Turn off your stupid phone. Get rid of social media if you really want to make a difference. And fill your mind with the Word of God. You'll be amazed what happens if you turn your TV and your social media off and you just get into the Word of God. You'll be amazed what God can do. If you're being tempted, the Bible says to just fast and pray. And then turn to this body for help. We're here for you. If you find that you're questioning your identity, turn to this body. We're here to help you in that. We're not going to shame you. We're going to tell you what's true, but we'll love you. None of us have got this figured out. But maybe you're here this morning and you can't be different because you've never been made new. And only people that have been made new can really make a difference because the power of sin is broken in our life. And that's how we're trying to make a difference. So maybe today you would say, man, I need Jesus. And the place for me to start is really just to come to Jesus, that he died for you, that he was crucified, to pay for your sin, that he was buried, that he was raised again to give you new life. And you're today saying, man, that's what I need. I need Jesus in my life. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know why you would want to come down. There's going to be people here to receive you, to pray with you. But let's stand to our feet. Let me pray, and then you come. Father, take your word and do wonders in our midst.